Hey, 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 film fans! Welcome in to another episode of the Second Day Film Podcast. It's the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club. It's another quarantine episode on Friday, May 8th, 2020. The murder hornets have arrived. Robots are patrolling parks in Singapore. And I'm pretty sure my social media score just went down 10 points. No, this is not an episode of Black Mirror. It's just 2020. I'm your host, Brandon Champion, joined by co-hosts, Mr. Sunshine himself, Evan Dean. How's it going, buddy? I'm doing well, man. Um, You know, that is a great uh, characterization of what's going on right now. It honestly feels like this could be an episode of Black Mirror or something like it. It's just murder hornets, really? Come on. (laughs) The end is nigh, my friend. The end is nigh. (laughs) Also with us is the Tiger King philosopher, who I'm just going to call Joe Exotics-Tacles from now on, Mike Nichols. What's up, buddy? Hey everybody, thanks for having me again. Um, just so you know, I'm going to try to be talking louder into the mic because apparently the last recording, it's just the mic's not picking it up as well. So I'm literally, my lips are almost right on top of this mic and I'm trying to talk louder so you can hear me better. We appreciate that. The people, give the people what they want, Mike. They want to hear you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, people. <laughs> Anyways. Coming up on today's show, the three of us are going to review several newish titles uh, that have been released on streaming in recent weeks. Of course, we're still barred from the theater, sadly. Uh, but but up on the docket today includes the uh, multi-part sports documentary on ESPN about the 90s Chicago Bulls titled The Last Dance. We're also going to talk about a movie in which Thor kills every cop in Asia, uh, but first, we need to talk. take a moment to discuss a bit of somber news. Uh, and no, Evan, it's not uh, the coronavirus. It's not the fact that you moved to Florida and left me alone. Um, but did you see the Cadillac 4 movie theater is closing its doors permanently? Did you see this? Wait, uh, wait, wait. Yeah, are I you, saw that. Are you yeah. serious? For good. Yeah, just just broke today. I'm going to read uh, a, a short story that is not particularly well written, but it's from your former employer, 9 and 10 News. This is quote <laughs> for quote. The Cadillac 4 movie theater recently announced it will be closing its doors permanently. In February, the Cadillac 4, owned by Goodrich Quality Theaters, applied for bankruptcy. They had hopes of getting back on their feet, but the COVID-19 crisis swept in. Governor Gretchen Whitmer ordered movie theaters to temporarily close beginning March 16th. The theater says the complete loss of revenue hit them hard. Now the theater will remain closed until someone buys it and decides to reopen it. So some very sad news from our hometown in Cadillac, Mm. Michigan. I mean, that's the theater we grew up on. Yeah, man, that is. That really bums me out. Um, You know, I'm not entirely surprised. Goodrich was like the, you know, the ugly stepchild of, of, you know, the Cineplex franchises. So they've been struggling for a while. But man, I mean... So many films I've seen in that theater. So many good memories as a kid growing up watching movies. And dare I say my you know love for film started there. So that's really too bad to hear about that because there's nothing else close. Yeah, I will say that with a lot of, or at least in my experience covering business uh, and, and covering theaters in Muskegon County and West Michigan, and a lot of these small theaters do go through this where they have to close for mm-hmm. a little bit. And then a new investor will come in and provide some capital and they can open back up. And because it, it really is just about, you know, providing the overhead costs and then getting the movies in. So 
I'm not going to, you know, say that the, it can never close again. I know they just did re- renovations up there as well to go from the Cadillac 5 to the Cadillac 4. So I think there's a chance that maybe, yeah. you know, like someone could roll in it and open up again. I'm not holding out hope, but definitely some sad and disturbing news. Mike, you said you, you heard about this as well? Yeah, I saw your post about it. I'm so sorry, guys. It's always rough when uh, the theater that you had so many fun memories of closes. I remember when Studio 28 in Wyoming, Michigan closed down. I grew up going to that movie theater all the time. I think I still have old ticket hubs that I've stayed or ticket stubs that I've stayed from that. Um, yeah, I'm really sorry, guys. It's just it's sad to hear, but it's probably going to be what's going on with you know uh, the economy kind of being mm-hmm. in hibernation for the time being. Um, it's it's sadly not going to be the end of stories like these, but uh, yeah, it's too bad. Had a good run. Yeah, I held my first female hand in that theater. It was, oh it was man. A- yeah, yeah. Yeah, seventh grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. It was like the place and you know, you, who you sat by was such a big deal. Man, I kind of forgot about that. That was a really fun part of growing up at the movies. For sure. Champ- so hopefully, uh, you know, I'm, sorry, go ahead. Did you say you you held your first female hand in that movie theater? That must have been a really good memory for you and your mom. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Funny guy, funny guy, funny guy. Moving on. uh, (laughs) We want you to get in touch with us. Please like our Second Day uh, Film Podcast Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at Second Day Film. Follow us on Instagram at the Second Day Film Podcast. Please, please, please check out our old episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Leave us a rating if you feel like it. Even tell us if we suck. Tell us Mike's mic is too low. We did get some good feedback on that, so we appreciate that. Um, But also got some good feedback on the three-man pod, so we appreciate that as well. We want to hear from you, film fans. This only works, uh, you know, if we're recording for you. We don't just need to sit here and listen to each other talk all the time, although I do like listening to you guys talk, not trying to take away from that. But, you know, tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Tell us what you want us to review. We want to hear from you. Anyways, moving forward to today's episode, as I said, we are going to review a um, slew of things that we have seen out on streaming lately, Uh, beginning with The Last Dance. This is a 10-part ESPN documentary series. Um, It covers the 1990 reign of the Chicago Bulls. Everyone is interviewed in this thing. I think I've been watching it. Evan's been watching it. Uh, Mike, you have not had a chance to see it, correct? I, I really want to see this. I just don't have uh, the access to whatever it's streaming on. But, yeah, I grew up watching the Bulls. I was able to watch Jerry Seinfeld's hilarious, Hey, Phil. I, was, <laughs> I found that on YouTube. Oh, man, I want to see this so bad. How is it, guys? Oh, it's fantastic in my eyes. Uh, IMDb plot summary, charting the rise of the 1990 Chicago Bulls, led by Michael Jordan, one of the most notable dynasties in sports history. Um, so I've seen five, six of the episodes have aired so far out of the ten. I've seen six of them. Uh, Evan, you or I've seen five of them. How many have you seen, Evan? Yeah, I've seen four. And um, if you don't mind, I'm just going to jump right in and let you know um, kind of what I think. Um, right out the gate, you know, I really like this storytelling structure used by the filmmaker here. Of course, the documentary is called The Last Dance. It's about the Bulls' final championship season, 97 and 98. But it really tells the entire story of the rise of the Bulls' dynasty of the 90s. And what I like about it is it does it through its main characters. The first episode highlights MJ. 
The second is about Scottie Pippen. The third is about Dennis Robin. And the fourth, that's the last one I've seen. Uh, that's about Phil Jackson. And of course, uh, you mentioned it, Champ. The filmmakers have access to everybody, all of the big players, coaches, opponents. Even Barack Obama makes an appearance. He grew up in Chicago and uh, was well aware of the hype surrounding this team. Uh, you know, I grew up playing hockey. Uh, I'm admittedly not a huge uh, basketball fan. Uh, I, I prefer college basketball, quite frankly, to the NBA. Uh, but I have been captivated uh, by this so far. And, you know, a, a couple of realizations, um, it, you know, you think Tom Brady or Pat Mahomes are megastars? I mean, those guys are nothing compared to MJ in the 90s. I was in elementary school. I, I'm You guys both were as well um, back in the, the mid to late 90s. And even then, I knew how big MJ was. But you go back and watch this and you realize, wow, I mean, this guy was a cultural icon. For sure. I mean, the first thing I want to say is thank you, ESPN, uh, because initially this wasn't supposed to air until the summer, I believe, around the NBA Finals. And they decided to move it up because of this coronavirus. And obviously, we have no sports now. And, you mm -hmm. know, part of it was for selfish reasons because they need programming. But, you know, all of us have, have benefited from it because we obviously are just dying for some some sort of new sports content to come out. And this has really filled a void on Sunday nights. I mean, I say like Scott Van Pelt, ESPN's lead sports center anchor, is literally following up episodes of this with like hour long conversations acting like it's breaking news when this happened in the nineties. So I, I just appreciate that we at least have some sort of new content to react to. And I appreciate that ESPN moved it up Two things that make this documentary next level. One, they got everyone to talk about this NBA mm -hmm. legends, random teammates that everyone has forgotten about opponents, GMs, coaches, front office, people, freaking Barack Obama, Carmen Electra, I mean, like, and that's only through five episodes. I mean, literally everyone and their brother has some sort of opinion on the 1990s Bulls, and that's because they were a phenomenon, like you said. The second reason why I think this documentary is next level, apparently a film crew followed the Bulls around for the entire 1998 season, The Last Dance, as Phil Jackson dubbed it, uh, and that's where the, the documentary gets its, its title. So there's literally mostly unseen footage of this the last dance season that has allowed viewers access in a glimpse into the team dynamic that no one has ever seen before and because of that it's making this feel like it's breaking news yeah so one thing i wondered about that is okay is this really unseen footage because i know there's been claims and of course you can claim it and there can be a few scenes here and there but Okay, if that's true, I, I I wonder why you know why is this not being seen until you know twenty five years you know twenty twenty five years later? I, I that's something I wondered while watching this because I heard the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean that's a fair question. I mean I'm sure if you really wanted to find maybe this stuff is out there, maybe bits and pieces are out there. I mean you talk about footage like the the fifth episode, and Evan, I know you haven't seen that, but that has a lot to do with the nineteen ninety two Dream Team. Uh, you know, playing in Barcelona that obviously Michael Jordan was the the focal point of the team, but Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley, you know, Patrick Ewing, Isaiah Thomas left off the team. That's a whole nother matter. Um, but oh, yeah. in episode five, you they show footage of this practice game that they played in Monte Carlo leading up the team. It was like an inter-squad scrimmage. And Magic Johnson and Charles Barkley and Michael Jordan 
Magic and Charles Barkley on one team, MJ's on the other team, and they are talking mad trash to each other during the game, literally almost getting into blows, just egging each other on. And it's just fascinating to see these NBA legends going at each other in what is essentially a glorified pickup game. It's just fantastic to watch. I don't know if this footage Hmm. has been out there, but my point, whether or not this footage has been out there, is that the access and the glimpse into a world that most people never got to look into to see these NBA legends just interacting uh, is just utterly fantastic. So, Mike, I know you haven't seen the documentary, um, but, you know, you have memories of the 90s Bulls, correct? Oh, yeah. Um, My dad and I and my good friend David Carter and I, we would watch them all the time. I remember, um, you know, them against the Sonics and them against the Jazz. Like, I mean, they were some some of the best basketball games I've ever watched in my life. Nothing – Nothing was ever like watching Michael Jordan. Yeah. So for me, as someone, you know, I was born in 1989. So MJ's last title in 1998, you know, I, w- I was still pretty young. And I, and I have vague memories like at, like you, Evan. I'm much more into college basketball. In fact, I openly detest the NBA uh, in a lot of ways. But I remember watching the last finals of Michael Jordan against the Jazz. I remember my dad, who, again, who also was not a big NBA guy, you know, telling me about, well, this is Michael Jordan. It's supposed to be his last run, and the NBA Finals are on. And I just remember watching that. So the other thing that I really appreciate about this documentary is that I've gotten a glimpse into, you know, the intricacies. And, and you know, Jerry Krause, the, the drama with him, and that Scottie Pippen wasn't with the team for half the year. And it's really giving me more perspective on that time period. And it's really, you know – filled in the gaps, so to speak. Are you having a similar experience with that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing that's interesting to me, um, because I've said, you know, you know, similar perspective as you, you know, I I knew a little bit, you know, I knew about MJ, obviously, how great he was, but to see how big it really was has been eye-opening. But what what I found was interesting, and you alluded to this, Champ, you said that there was the, you know, the bitter, you know, battle in this scrimmage game. Uh, it's interesting to see how much the NBA's changed. You know, nowadays you've got so many players that grew up together, that played youth ball together, that played, you know, in the, you know, across the country together. Um, and you know, everybody plays nice and nobody really plays defense. And it's just kind of, honestly, it's been become known for being a soft sport until you get to the, the playoffs. Man, back then, that wasn't the case at all. The, the bad blood between the teams is amazing and it's intense. Um, you know, the, one of the episodes, or actually two of the episodes, three and four, are, are in part dedicated to the bad boys Detroit Pistons seeing, you know, the, the literal physical fights. Uh, you know, the games were like a dog fight out there. Um, it was really cool to watch. And, you know, Look, I love, you know, three-point shooting and high scoring, but you look at the NBA back in the late 80s through the 90s, and, you know, these guys wanted to win. They didn't play nice with each other, and it was just a different kind of league, and in my opinion, one um, that in some ways was better off. Uh, Forget some ways. It was better off. Having Magic, Larry, and Michael Jordan – all along with the bad boys, all in the league yeah. at the same time. And each of them ran their own ship. They weren't teaming up. They were taking each other on. You mentioned the bad boys. I feel a weekly need to defend the bad boys on social media when I see all the 
the trash talk from the rest of the country talking crap about the bad boys. They were dirty. And episode five talks about when the when the Bulls finally beat the bad boys and how the bad boys mm-hmm. walked off the court. That was four. Yeah, like, I just saw that one. So yeah, that was oh, episode four. four. Yeah. Okay, so you got you got you know Michael Jordan, Isaiah Thomas, all them, you know, yeah. giving their different sides of the story. I felt the need to defend the bad boys as a Pistons fan. And I will say this. You can say what you want about the bad boys. Any basketball fan can say what they want about the bad boys. If you're not a Detroit fan, you're probably pissing them. You probably hate them. But you mm-hmm. know, there's a reason that two episodes of this documentary have been largely dedicated to the bad boys. Because you don't tell the story of Michael Jordan without the bad boys. And I think it's fair to say that MJ doesn't become Air Jordan without the bad boys. And I think he's even admitted that to a certain extent. Oh, yeah. No, I, I agree. Look, I mean, you've got... You know, you've got every, uh, you know, they say it, every, you know, team in that era overcame another team, right? You know, the, the bad boys had to overcome the Celtics and then the, the Bulls had to overcome the bad boys. And, you know, uh, again, I think what was so great about it is like these guys hated each other. They went out on the court and I mean, honestly, for, for anybody who's only seen the NBA now, it is honestly jarring to watch footage from those games and see Bill Lambeer clock somebody in the face. I mean, and, 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 you know, no, he wasn't getting kicked out of the game. He might have gotten a flagrant foul. It was just a whole different ball game. And I think that, I don't know, I really miss that kind of competitive nature where you had, um, you know, an, an NBA where they were really, really, um, you know, competitive and intense and not laying off each other. And, and you're right, champ, you know, the bad boys, I mean, they did it their way. That was their style. And, um, you know, our, anybody in Michigan that loves and appreciates that team and, and their, you're right, their impact on MJ and what they meant to him and his career. I mean, he, him beating them was him getting over the hump. What the hell is with this Jerry Krause guy? He's he's prominently featured. They give him a lot of credit in the documentary for bringing Jackson to Chicago, for drafting Michael Jordan, for bringing in Dennis Rodman, for drafting Scottie Pippen. They give him his due credit. But why is this guy so hell-bent to get rid of Phil Jackson? I don't understand. It's This guy is a clown. <laughs> well, I think I think that we're getting to that. Um, I think that in, you know, I mean, there's going to be 10 episodes and all. We've got four that even haven't even been released. I think when this thing rounds out, we might get a little bit more of a picture as to why things went the way they did. Um, you're right, though. I mean, what did Phil Jackson do after he was done with the Bulls? He went to the Lakers and won five more titles. The dude has won 11 championships. So, um, you know... I think we're getting to that. And I think that that is um, kind of the heart of this, of this documentary is the bulls ended. Why did they end? What happened? And we got a little bit of that in the first episode and I'm sure we're going to get more, but I think it goes back to egos. You know, I think it goes back to egos in these positions of, you know, coach versus, you know, uh, team versus player versus, you know, GM and, um, you know, it looks as though he felt like he could do, he could, you know, manage a team and have success and what didn't want to be reliant on any one person or one coach and, uh, go look up the record of the bulls the year after the last dance. Cause it didn't pan out well for them. Yeah. I mean, and they, they do talk about that right off the jump. They talk about, yep. you know, how, you know, he, 
he, you know, is looking towards the future and he, they give him credit and everything, but moving on, I just want to, before we end with this and, and we're going to toss it to Mike here for something else in a bit, but can we please just stop with the MJ versus Kobe versus LeBron crap? Like it's so irrelevant and pointless <laughs> and, and it doesn't really allow us to appreciate greatness. I mean, one one of the positives, and there have been many positives from coronavirus, and we that's a whole other conversation um, in terms of, you know, how it's personally affected people. But it has given us time to sort of hit the pause button and slow down and appreciate greatness. And by doing things like, especially, you know, in sports, you know, we can, we can kind of, I'm seeing a lot of old footage, a lot of old games, a lot of, just mm-hmm. things that have happened over the last couple of decades that we're so focused on moving forward and constantly moving forward and, and doing things that I think sometimes we forget to stop and look at how great or how amazing things are in the world of sports when they're happening. And through this documentary, I think that we've all been given sort of an opportunity to sit back, stop, relax, and look back at some of these great sporting heroes that we've had through the years. I, I'm with you, man. I mean, I, I loved MJ. I love MJ. love what he's done. I love LeBron, too. I, I never knew that it was like <laughs> it was not allowed to be a fan of both of those guys. I've always been a oh, huge fan Twitter, of both. Twitter, bro. That's, that's not well, allowed. You're not allowed to be fans of both. And, and I'll admit, you know, I'll admit this. Kobe, I was never as big into Kobe because, you know, he was admittedly – he modeled his whole career after – MJ. Um, not they, to say they I didn't appreciate. They get into that deep in episode five. Okay, and not not to not to say I don't appreciate what Kobe did. He was amazing, but I've always had the belief of it's really really challenging to compare players across different eras, and rather than try to proclaim the goat, just appreciate them for what they were. Man, I mean. The Spartan dog, Magic Johnson, was amazing, you know, in his era, which was right before MJ. Like, let's, we don't have to, we don't have to necessarily proclaim who's number one or who's not. And it's, it's a tendency of sports fans to do, try to do it. And it, it becomes this bigger thing than it needs to be. I, you're right. Let's appreciate them for what they were and who they were in the era they were in. Here, here. Mike, you have anything else you want to say on this? Um, I just sent you guys in our text chat um, an article by Vulture called How the Last Dance Unearthed the Holy Grail of Buried Michael Jordan Footage. And this is going to kind of answer the great question I think you asked earlier, which is if all this you know stuff is so great, why has it been you know hidden for like you know two decades essentially? So basically there was a, uh, a field producer, Andy Thompson, who is the main guy we have to thank for all this stuff. And um, Greg Winnick answered the, that exact question of why did it take 22 years for an audience to see this film? Um, he said, Adam Silver's promise to Michael Jordan in 1997 was, let us shoot this, give us access, one day we'll have a great video, or if you're not ready for it to be released, you'll have the best home video anybody has ever had. So going in, there was a partnership with Michael, an understanding that we wouldn't release anything unless it was the right time for the NBA and for Michael Jordan for this to come out. So the 500 hours went under lock and key in the vaults of various offices of NBA Entertainment. On the 3,200 reels of film that were shot, they put an, uh, we put an, well, I'm just reading the quote. We put an X to denote that they were not to be used. Over the years, various projects and opportunities came up. We originally thought a year or two later that it could be made to a 90-minute documentary that would be in theaters or on HBO. 
but it was just never the right time to unlock the vault for a few years ago when the last dance project mm. finally started coming together. So thank God they waited so long to when entertainment could yeah. catch up with the way this story should be told. Can you imagine if this had just been a 90 minute documentary? Think of how, how much no. we would have missed. Oh man. Yeah. If only Jerry Cross would have had that foresight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I hope that I hope that answers your earlier question. Which I, I the second you asked that, I was like, "Wow, that is a good question." I started googling it while you guys were talking, and that's what came yeah. up. Nice work, sure. Mike. Um, yeah. la- last thing I'm going to say: How about those Bulls pregame shows? Holy shit, that's the best. Those thing were I've the ever best. Seen. They used to be amazing. They were so good. Huh. Yeah, they're still not going to top Mason announcing the Detroit, you know, the 2000 era Detroit. For me, those are my boys. Those are my guys. I can't give too much credit to the Chicago Bulls because I am a Pistons fan through and yeah. through. Detroit versus everybody. Anyways, watch The Last Dance. It is well done. It is very interesting. It's a lifting of the veil behind one of the greatest sports dynasties we have ever known. Uh, the last four parts will be airing in the next two subsequent Sundays, so we're not going to give a final grade on this. Uh, but since it's one of the big things people are talking about, we wanted to get into it here today. By the way, I got to say that post you made about the basketball game between the friends and the office, I oh, yeah. loved that so much. I loved reading all those comments. <laughs> those comments were fun. It was hilarious that's, just analyzing it like it was some real shit. <laughs> dude, that's one of, that's one of my favorite posts you've ever made on the page. I loved that one so much. It was funny. We need more of those. Yeah. I I need I mean from that author, that artist. I need more like, give me, like, you know, like, Lost first Game of Thrones or something. Like, you know, like, something insane. All right, moving on. Evan and I are going to actually let uh, Mike talk about something now. So, uh, Mike, thanks for being here. We appreciate your participation. Uh, it's a show called Tales from the Loop, which is on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's a show created by Nathaniel Halpern, the plot summary in IMDb, the townspeople who live above the loop a machine built to unlock and explore the mysteries of the universe, experience things previously consigned to the realm of science fiction. Uh, A lot of people in this show, uh, I see Jonathan Price, but Mike, I'm going to toss it to you and uh, Rebecca Hall as well, one of my favorites. But uh, tell us about this show, Mike. I don't know much about it. Yeah, so Tales from the Loop um, is a very, very original idea for a sci-fi series. Um, so the, the main premise for this was there um, is a, an amazing Swedish artist named, I, I'm sorry if I get your name wrong, uh, Simon Stallenhag, and he has uh, done some just incredible sci-fi art uh, about like retro, futuristic, like digital imagery. Um, a lot of it looks like, you know, almost like beautiful, very um, you know, peaceful, nostalgic scenes from the 80s, like on a beach or in a snowy woods or in open farm fields. And then in the background, though, is usually like a huge mechanical sci-fi, you know, instrument or piece of technology. And he just has a really like cool, thoughtful, reflective style of art. So they took his book, his art book, Tales from the Loop, and they decided to take um, certain painting frames and just turn that into a story. So... Um, what they kind of have is a main premise and then each episode kind of follows like a different narrative within that town where, you know, there's an eclipse, which is a a sphere like object that deals with fringe physics. And there's all these little artifacts from those experiments that are littered around the landscape of this town. 
And then each episode kind of follows someone interacting, you know, with something of that nature and how it affects uh, their narrative. So there's not really a main story like that you're following with the same consistent characters through each episode, but you will see the same characters kind of scattered throughout each episode. Um, and it's a very, uh, it's a very original kind of cool idea. Um, it's, uh, it's very peaceful and it's very meditative as a show. Um, it doesn't have like a lot of high energy tension, like black mirror. It doesn't really even have a lot of, you know, statements about the dangers of technology, you know, like black mirror. It really is trying to do its own original thing, which is just to cause you to reflect on subtlety to just kind of explore and meditate on just human experiences. Um, whether those be things like emotion or memory or perception. Um, the problem with that, however, though, is because it doesn't have a main consistent storyline, there's not really good character development and you don't really get to dig deep into a narrative. It's just kind of all these random, beautiful pieces but they're not really connected in a way that really kind of hits you as hard as this could. Cause it is very well done. Um, and definitely at t- I think it's, I read somewhere like it's, it toes the line between beguiling and boring and it, it really kind of does. I mean uh, you know, it's got great standout performances. Like you mentioned from Jonathan price, Rebecca hall. Um, I thought another guy, Otto Asando, he did great um, in this. And uh, there's just so many long, slow shots that really are trying to get you to reflect but they also just kind of really slow down what you're watching and you really got to be into getting through this show um, and really trying to, you know, experience what it's trying to get at as a piece of art. Otherwise, you're going to miss it. Um, I was definitely impressed with the soundtrack um, and the way that they were trying to do something very original and very bold um, in terms of reflective human sci-fi storytelling. Um, but at the end of the day, the writing just needed to be sharper. Character development needed to go deeper. I hope it comes back for a second season. It's not decided yet, as far as I know. Um, there's a lot of potential for what they were trying to do. I think it's very uncompromising, and I love their idea. But they really just got to you know, give us a reason to care about what's happening. Because there's, um, there's too much just emptiness sometimes. You know, show don't tell is great, but sometimes you got to explain something. You know, you got to have a little bit more meaning to it. So, yeah, it's a great idea for a show. I think they've got something gold on their hands, but they really got to work it um, work it better for the next season. Yeah, you know, um, Mike, in the two pods that I've done with you, um, it sounds like a perfect, you know, perfect show for someone like you to try. And I say that as a compliment because, um, you know, you're a smart guy who's willing to – um, watch um, a show that that might take a little bit more in terms of um, the level of uh, of how you view it. Um, you know, Champ and I always talk about the kind of the the compare contrast versus somebody like you or I or Champ who've studied film to an extent who can look deeper beyond the surface into finding meaning. And then also kind of the everyman viewer, you know, shout out to popcorn correspondent Sam Morris, you know, the general audience of film and TV needs something almost flashy or um, catchy or eye-grabbing to captivate them. And it sounds like this requires um, a lot more, not only patience, but also dedication from the viewer to really enjoy it and take anything away from it. 
Yeah, so I'll give you a couple examples. There's there's one point where a, a boy is like stuck on an island, and there's a part where the camera just zooms around him, and or, sorry, not zooms, but just pans around him, and he's just there, and then the camera just pans, and you see across the beach, you see across the jungle, you see across mm. the shore. And Do you feel you like there's meaning? I'm sorry, what was that? Like, do you feel like there's like a clear meaning or a message or a theme that's being conveyed? Because Champ, I took a, I took a, a, a film class in college for David Lynch. And Champ and I've talked a little bit about Lynch and because Champ's watched a couple of his films recently. And Lynch sometimes would have things in film that would have deep hidden meanings. And other times he would have things in, in you know, s- symbolism, um, you know, themes that maybe didn't even mean anything and you you know does it have a meaning or a theme or a message or anything that's even there or is it just hard to digest i definitely think that it is trying to give you a piece of art to digest in a meaningful way for yourself um but you know that that scene where the camera just pans and all you just see is scenery for a while you know, I think I think the whole point is it's up to you. I, I took away that they were showing it was desolation. You need to get back into nature for a while. But, uh, you know, let's say you go to an art museum and you just see a big, you know, canvas and just has one color on it. Hmm. And that's it. It's just one big color. You can look at that as long as you want and take your own meaning. And another person can come and sit there and look at it and take their own meaning. And maybe mm-hmm. maybe that's what the artist is trying to let people experience. Just, hey, here's a color. Whatever you feel, great. That's what this color can do for you. That's the beauty of art. So I think in some ways this is doing that. It's trying to give people film art. It's a little bit more reflective. It's a little bit more just mood setting than like a, tip, a typical sci-fi you know, story that might be really about message and technology. Like this is almost just more setting some really amazing moods. And and the soundtrack, which I have to say is beautiful, a lot of piano soundtrack, it really does a good job of doing that too. But when that's like 50, 50 to, you know, 70% of the art itself, it's really hard to track it as a story. And yeah. it's, you know, and that's what we kind of come to film usually to watch. So yeah, maybe you're right that this isn't for everyone. Maybe someone like me who's like super into film in a really nerdy and maybe unhealthy way, that maybe it's better for people like us who are just obsessed about this stuff. But for the average viewer, I don't know that this is going to be their trick. It's probably going to feel really slow and maybe even boring for them. And yeah. uh, but, but I do have to admit, even though I do think they were going for something that was more like uncompromised and really like artistically like, you know, um, driven – they do need to have a little bit of better writing. I mean, there's some scenes where the yeah. characters are just talking to each other and it's like, you know, you know, when like characters are just talking around whatever the issue is, but at the end of the day, you're like, yeah, but this isn't how people talk. And I really don't know what's trying to be expressed here. Um, where it's like, someone just walks in, Hey, did we get it? Yeah. Oh yeah. What do you mean? I don't know. <laughs> like, okay, this isn't good dialogue writing. I mean, these people have to talk about something in a more meaningful way than this. Yeah. And what I'll say, you know, kind of before throwing it to champ is, you know, yeah, dialogue is important in storytelling and you don't have to have a, a, a show or a movie full of dialogue, but, um, you know, it's important. And also I, I don't have any issue with a show or a movie that, um, doesn't have a completely clear message or, or intention and wants yeah, to leave no, it open either. to interpretation to the viewer, but yeah. it's harder to do well, I think. 
Yeah, the lack of urgency that this kind of storytelling has, though, really does take away from the energy, which is yeah. kind of what makes it feel slow. And if, yeah, sure, it forces you to just kind of sit with the imagery and the music and, you know, the core human qualities the show is trying to get at. But, you know, the originality and the impressive mood setting is, is worth complimenting and taking note of. Uh, it's a very unique show. And unique can be hard to find, like, especially in the fast-growing world of streaming shows. So at the end of the day... I really want it to come back and do more with its storytelling, um, but it, it needs to improve that. Um, I would give it a I'd give it a B plus for effort. Huh. Perhaps along the lines of you know, looking at the individual person, what they're going to you know get out of a show like this. It actually spawned a 2017 alternate history science fiction tabletop role playing game called <laughs> Tales of the Loop, which I have no idea how that would play into a TV series. Uh, but maybe, Mike, you, you have a little bit more of an idea how that could work. But one other thing I wanted to mention before we get further is uh, one of the, one of the uh, on the Wikipedia page, just a quick glance, one of the uh, reception uh, quotes is from the Michigan Daily. Joshua Thomas, who says he considers the show, quote, exactly what got good sci-fi should be like. So I found that interesting that we have the student newspaper at Michigan. Being hey, hey, excuse me. Excuse me, champ. I, I have to, as, as former journalists, we must correct that quote. It's exactly what good sci-fi should look like. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Did I, did I read that wrong? You said exactly <laughs> what good sci-fi should be like. And <laughs> well, fuck you. I've had three cocktails. Anyways. <laughs> don't don't misquote the student newspaper. <laughs> yeah. You sorry, of all people sorry. should know that better. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but, that's yeah. Tales from the Loop. It's on Amazon Prime. Check it out if you're interested. All right, moving on from uh, science fiction to an alternate reality uh, of the United States in World War era New York and New Jersey. Uh, it's a film, or sorry, a miniseries that just wrapped on HBO. It's called The Plot Against America. This movie was created by David Simon, the man behind the legendary show The Wire, and his creative partner Ed Burns. Uh, great cast in this. Winona Ryder, Anthony Boyle, Zoe Kazan, Morgan Spector, Michael Kostroff, David Krumholtz, Ajay Robertson, Caleb Mills, and John Turturro. Um, this show, as I mentioned, in an alternate universe, characters live in an alternative history in which Franklin... D. Roosevelt was defeated in the U.S. presidential election of 1940 by Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh, of course, the famed aeronaut. David Simon, as I said, famously the man behind the wire. This was a six-part miniseries uh, that just wrapped a couple weeks ago. I started watching this show basically on a whim. It was pretty random. I've been getting into a lot of old HBO shows lately. Saw this was premiering. Saw it was about history. Decided to, to give it a chance. And I loved it, uh, specifically a couple things. One, the performances. Morgan Spector, who plays Herman Levin, uh, the head of this Jewish family in New Jersey, um, through which this story and the lens of this alternate America takes place. Um, but also Zoe Kazan, who plays his wife, Bess, and Anthony Boyle, who plays his nephew, uh, Elvin. John Turturro, um, Winona Ryder, also exceptional. Great all-around all performances throughout this that really helps us get in the shoes and helps us feel how helpless this Jewish family feels in this sort of alternative version of America where we 
never get into World War II and basically anti-Semitism uh, sort of rises in America. We become sort of not allies with the Nazis, but cordial with them. Um, so basically we, we experience how this develops through this German family. The real star here, other than the performances, is the script based on the novel from 2004 by Philip Roth. I love uh, specifically the way that it prioritizes restraint and subtlety in the way that it lets this story unfold across six episodes. So what I mean by that is Charles Lindbergh becomes president and anti-Semitism starts to rise in the U.S., but this show is not outward or blunt in its portrayal of racism or bigotry. It's a very slow burn. Uh, you know, episodes one through three, we see very little difference in the way the Levins are living their lives in New Jersey. There's little hints and clues that things are maybe changing for the worse for the Jewish people, but nothing drastic. Later, we do see racism, like people yelling loudmouth Jew or government agencies setting up programs that maybe like, you know, sort of politely or discreetly send urban Jewish boys to the Midwest to make them more American. And I'm doing quote fingers there. So it's, it's sort of this subtle racism. And even the finale, which is one of the most tense, nerve wracking, pulse pounding episodes of television I've ever seen, there's not a ton of outward violence or racism against American Jews. But the way that the team, the filmmakers, David Simon and his team, make it unfold, it's still very unsettling and full of tension. And I think it was a really smart way to go about things, considering the landscape of America um, and the globe today. So I know neither of you guys have seen this show, um, but I was really impressed with it. And I really didn't expect to like this show as much as I did. Um, but I've been telling, this was breaking right when the Tiger King phenomenon was happening. I was telling everyone, watch the plot against America, screw Tiger King. But I, I know you guys, neither of you have seen this, but Mike, I know you're a big David Simon fan. Oh yeah. One of the highlights of my life was when David Simon liked a tweet of mine. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the wire, the wire is my favorite show of all time. It, you know, it totally impacted me, not just as a journalist, but just as a person in general. Um, yeah, I, I really want to see this one. I'm really curious. You know, David Simon is such a such a sharp um, socioeconomic and political writer, and really just understands people and the systems that they create and are you know created by. Um, how did like what would you say is the main like social or political message that you started to see as this show unfolded? Because he's very good at those subtle things that you start to see, like the systems over time within the structures of shows, like. What would you say right, is something right. that you took away from the plot against America? Well, it's pretty clear. I mean, the, the <laughs> while the outward racism is not clear uh, or anti-Semitism is not clear in the show, um, it's very clear that he's making parallels to 2020 with Donald Trump as the president of the United States. Um, mm -hmm. and, and obviously racism is still not something that most people accept or think is okay, but it's here. It's in the seedy underbelly of America. We know racism is there. And say what you want about politics or how you feel, but the rise of Donald Trump has without a doubt emboldened people who have racist ideals to be more vocal. You know, and there's a very clear parallel to this alternative reality set in World War II that is very clearly meant to represent what's going on in 2020. And I should say... Um, I listened to, you know, they, they did a, a podcast, a, an official HBO podcast with David Simon 
along with this show and I listened to all six episodes. So he, I mean, and he makes it clear, you know, that is part of what's going on. And he doesn't say that he's specifically trying to represent the Trump administration and what's going on now. He's more talking in generic, like you said, subtle scales of just the way that when different people rise to power, different things happen and different consequences arise. So Mm. it's very clear, like you said, David Simon knows exactly what he's doing. But it really is, this show really makes you ask the question, what if America didn't get involved in World War II? What would the world look like today? Ugh. Ugh. And, it, and that's, very, <laughs> that's an incredibly interesting question, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, I'm a, so like, I, I love, like, I'm, I'm kind of a World War II history buff a little bit. And yeah, that that's a terrifying question. Like, I'm, I'm very thankful that the Allies won that war. It was certainly not a perfect victory but yeah i mean think about oh god like what a, mm. what a nightmare <laughs> well Sorry, you know it, it's interesting too because fortunately we weren't close to that happening roosevelt who served the longest presidency in american history 12 years obliterated his competition i mean i don't know how that's portrayed champ in the film but he he dominated in in the elections that he was in. So, you know, not that that matters, but um, we fortunately in the reality of it, we weren't close to what the plot against America is portraying. Yeah, thank God. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's basically shown. And again, David Simon, he's a master at crafting his worlds, and he really shows, you know, just the subtle rise, like the Jewish people, this family. Uh, you know, Herman, he's like, there's no chance that Delano Roosevelt's going to lose to this loudmouth aeronaut who thinks he's so cool because he flew across the globe, you know. And uh, But then subtly we see the opinions change. We see, hmm. you know, the, the tides start to flow in a different direction. And I almost think that the way the show is crafted where it's like this slow burn, like the waves slowly creeping on the shoreline, you know, the it, it just the slow burn is almost more terrifying when it happens in like a natural way than if some crazy uprising happens. It almost makes it more believable and really helps you translate that to today. So this well, was a huge surprise for me. I mean, I, I think it's a masterful, yeah. crafted, well-acted, fascinating look at what if that has a tons of relevance today. I give it an 8.5 out of 10. I, I don't think near mm-hmm. enough people have seen this show. Yeah, and I'm going to piss off a few people here, um, but bear with me. Um, you talk about the slow burn being a more powerful um, you know, um, vehicle in which to convey a message um, or, or a more impactful uh, way in which the message is conveyed. I think that as a journalist, and I know you both can attest, um, the slow way in which um, I've seen a large portion of the American public turn on the um, turn on the, the the journalists of America, um, not only during the Trump presidency and also during this pandemic, has been um, for me honestly stunning. And I don't know if you guys can draw any comparisons there, but um, to see how people's opinions and thoughts change and how people rebuke. Um, you know, good science right now in favor of some random video on YouTube. Um, I don't know. For me, that's just, uh, it's so disappointing. And, and I think it's been a slow burn to get to that point. And now we're here and it freaks me out. 
Well, that that's why this show is so impactful, in my opinion, because while it's not dealing, obviously, in the same time period, and it's not necessarily dealing with the same subject matter, the things that are happening within it, you can see how it would relate. Like, yeah. it's almost more scary that things would develop without anybody doing anything long time. I mean, it's the same reason, you know, it, yeah. you could say it's the same way that Germany, when when a lot of the citizens turned on the not on the Jews in Germany. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. sort of this slow brainwashing that takes over the majority of the public. And all of a sudden that's just the thing to do. And, and the way that this show shows how that could possibly happen in America is both relevant and terrifying and mm-hmm. also important to watch something like that happening and see how it could happen. So I really think, Everybody needs to watch this show. And this is why I was getting so annoyed with all the Tiger King hype when something like this that is way more meaningful, way better, way more important um, is happening at the same time. And I just wish more people would pay attention. So that's – that's, that's too. The... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mike. Go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say I wonder too if, if with like the rise of, you know, this kind of weird political – you know, age we're living in, if we are going to see more of these like alternative history type shows, because it is kind of a trend now, like I'm, I'm starting to notice, like, you know, we've got the plot against America. You guys remember that show, the man in the high castle. And, you know, yeah, I never watched like, it, but, you know, there's, yeah. there's Watchmen, which is technically alternative history. One can make an argument that that show outlander is also alternative history. You've got, what was that one? James Franco was in where they're trying to stop Kennedy's assassination at 11, 22, 63. Um, mm-hmm. It feels like alternative history is actually becoming a new like rise in modern television series. And uh, yeah, I, I wonder if it does have to do with, you know, just the political turmoil that we're seeing and people really trying to artistically reflect on, um, you know, what that could mean for all of us. Uh, yeah, I really do want to see this and I hope more people do and take the messages that you guys have talked about to heart because, you know, we need to. <clears throat> That's The Plot Against America. It's on HBO. Uh, Check it out. Okay. Moving on to something completely different is a new film that uh, just premiered on April 24th on Netflix. It stars Thor himself, Chris Hemsworth. It's called Extraction. It's directed by Sam Hargrave in his feature film debut uh, and is written by Joe Russo, one of the brothers behind... uh, the Avengers films and also Captain America Civil War. It's based on the graphic novel Suyudad by Andy Parks, Joe Russo himself, his brother Anthony Russo, Fernando Leon Gonzalez, and Eric Skillman. It stars Chris Hemsworth in the in the lead role as Tyler Rake, and also a bunch of uh, talented Indian actors who I'm not going to try and read their names. I just did it off air and. It didn't go very well. Um, And also David Harbour, who you'll know from Stranger Things, appears in this film. The plot summary in IMDb. Tyler Rake, a fearless black market mercenary, embarks on the most deadly extraction of his career when he's enlisted to rescue the kidnapped son of an imprisoned international crime lord. So we decided to review this movie because it, you know, well, it's a new movie that came out. That's about all the criteria you need uh, today in these days in 2020 when murder hornets are zooming outside our windows. Um, But Evan, I'll toss it to you first. Um, (laughs) What did you think about this movie in a generic sense? Um, Is this what uh, (laughs) what our guy Hemsworth is left with, guys? Like 
Thor's done and he's just going to be like this. Okay. So I'm going to start um, briefly. Thor is not some... done for the record. There's a I, well, coming out. He better hope because this, um, not that that requires any sort of acting either, but um, let me start with something that I, I really thought Whoa. was cool. Whoa. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> well, I guess we're just going to scooch past that unnecessary brazen attack against Chris Hemsworth's acting in the We're not we're not we're not here to talk about the Avengers. Please continue. I feel okay. protective of my boy Chris, but continue, Evan. Good beer belly in uh, Avengers. Um so what I really liked uh was um about 35 minutes in, you get this 11 and I timed it. 11 minute long continuous action shot. Of course, this at least appears to be continuous. I don't think it actually was. Um, but this was really, really cool. Uh, you you start with a car chase. Um, the filmmakers are kind of diving from outside of the car back into the car with Tyler, who's played by Chris Hemsworth, and Ovi, the young boy he's trying to save. Um, eventually, you get up several stories high for this great gun battle. Um, eventually, they, they fall down um, to the street, and there's a great street fight with vehicles weaving in and out of them. Um, you know, Tyler and his, one of his adversaries, who's actually uh, later a good guy, um, they fall, you know, a couple stories and the camera almost falls or like floats down with them. I was kind of curious actually how they pulled off a couple of the shots in this continuous shot. And, um, I thought that it was a uh, really cool, like that 11 minute moment was really cool. Um, <laughs> It's a two-hour movie. It's a yeah. two-hour movie. Evan is is thrilled with the eleven minutes out of that. Well, out of the car. Well, I think that that's the point here, right? Um, so that's the best thing I have to say about this movie. Um, actually, it was only an, an hour forty-five minutes if you consider the credits, and it seemed long for an hour forty-five, which is a bad thing. What I will say, though, guys, is um, you know, back to the action. Um. Like, look, action flicks have long been known to have, like, one singular trait. The hero is a perfect shot, can kill several bad guys simultaneously. The bad guys can't hit shit with their guns. This is, like, this is accepted by Hollywood. It's it's well known. But that considered, this film was ridiculous. I'd love to go back and see how many guys, uh, how many, you know, Indian soldiers Tyler single-handedly kills. It's got to be upwards of 100 over think, the course of the film, I, I mean, I it, it's Netflix ridiculous. Has it, I think Netflix has it pegged at 183 people. Is what I read. <laughs> oh, I uh, mean, right? That's ridiculous. Well, just let me correct you. First of all, they're Bangladeshian police officers. They're they're, uh, they're in Dhaka. This entire film. You're right. You're I agree. Right. I agree. The continuous shot was fantastic. We're out of the car. We're in the car. We're back out. It. We're in. We're in and out of car windows. We're moving through various spaces. <clears throat> they were clearly experimenting with angles, and I do think there were some really clever shots. Yeah. It almost felt like a video game cutscene uh, at, at certain points in the movie. To your point about the the one hero being, you know, this goes back. I just watched Die Hard recently, and it goes back to the the one lone gunman going up against everyone. It, it's very, and this is a theme that's been per- perpetuated like John in the John Wick movies. I got a lot of John Wick vibes in this movie. And John Wick is one of my favorite trilogies. It's fantastic. It wasn't done as well, but all the, you know, one versus everyone, the headshots, the the pretty cool hand-to-hand combat, you know. I think we got a little bit of everything through that long shot. Um, and I really did it 
enjoy that. And then the action in general, I thought was pretty cool. I thought it was well shot. Mm-hmm. Say what you want about the story, but I think that, you know, Hargrave and, and Russo and, and the rest of the cinema, cinematography team, I think they it's pretty clear they do know how to stage an action sequence. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think... <laughs> Uh, uh, yes uh, yes and you have to forgive an action film to a certain extent what i mean by that is you know the 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 um the the see the villain following the current villain he's shooting or fighting will not approach him until he's done with said villain right so he's gonna you know he's gonna shoot the one guy and the other guy's waiting until he approaches until after the other guy you know in certain things that we could accept. And all in all, I thought the action was pretty good. What about you, Mike? I mean, obviously that's what we're selling. They're selling here as a great action, um, you know, hand-to-hand combat in some cases, gun battles here and there. What did you think of that? Uh, yeah, I, I thought the movie had, like, pretty decent action. But, you know, a movie that's just action and doesn't really have compelling characters or a narrative that you really care about, isn't going to make you care that much about how good the action is. Like just, okay, just watch the YouTube clip of the action scene. That's it. Like, why do we have to make a whole movie? Um, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I, I wasn't too impressed by this. I thought the 11 minute trekking shot was okay, but the cuts were a bit obvious for it. Um, it also yeah. didn't, it didn't mean anything. Like usually trekking shots are supposed to like capture a mood really well, or they're supposed to capture a moment or, or some kind of like, stretch of time just to make you feel like the weight of this moment, like something like in ni- the movie was 1917 that just came out mm-hmm. or there's a great trekking shot in true detective in the first season that really just, it, there's so much like storytelling being done. I don't really know what the storytelling is of the trekking chase and extraction other than just, Oh look, it's lasting a while. Isn't that cool and impressive? No. Cause I don't care. Like, why does yeah, this, I mean, why did this need to be trekked? Like, who cares? This moment doesn't really represent anything special in the story because this story is just so, like, stupid and who cares? Like, okay, guys, son got kidnapped. This guy's got to go in. And then they're dropping all yeah. these stupid action cliches. That, like, I literally laughed out loud. Not, like, not because they were trying to love but he's like, that's not the job. And I was like, oh my God. Like only <laughs> only Chris Hemsworth can be charming enough to save such a dully written character. I mean, props it's to an, the it's action. An action yeah. it, it's an action movie for action movie's sake. I don't think anyone here Absolutely. has denied that. But yeah. it is an action movie, and I thought the action was fine. So if I'm watching an action movie, I'm okay with just riding on the action. That being said, I didn't really buy the relationship, and I think this is what you're getting to, Mike, with poorly written characters, or both of you. I didn't really buy the close relationship between Chris Hemsworth and the Indian kid. Like, why does he care so much about this kid? They throw in this forced backstory that he had a kid that died of lymphoma to, to make him more sympathetic, I guess. But with this guy who is, by all indications, a for money, for profit loner, would he really be willing to risk his bacon for this kid? And I think if you watch the movie and you watch the relationship on screen, which they try and develop into this like super <laughs> emotional, like I'll do no, anything it's, for this guy. It's, it's no, it doesn't feel like Chris Hemsworth would be willing to do this for this kid. 
Well, I'll, what I'll say is there's an obvious theme of fatherhood throughout the entire film. Um, not only between Chris Hemsworth and Ovi, the boy, um, you know, Chris Hemsworth is a shitty dad and Ovi has a shitty dad, but also between like our tertiary character who is trying to save Ovi so he can save his own son. So there's a lot of talk or of fatherhood and failed fatherhood. Um, but that said, um, you know, Tyler is such a carbon copy action hero stereotype. You know, the guy who has made, I've made mistakes in my personal life. I've made yeah. mistakes in my family life. I'm now an, I don't give a shit killing machine that is so played out. And I, I agree with you, champ. Um, the goal, what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, um, Tyler was a bad dad. Ovi has a bad dad. They need each other. Um, but they're they're in, in, in that they're trying to do that for like a redemption or a story or a re, you know a way which Tyler can redeem himself, but it just doesn't work. You know, at the end when spoiler alert, uh, Tyler dies, we see Ovi like in tears, slow motion running towards him, and we're expected to feel so much as the sound slows down and we get that emotional music over. You know, we're supposed to feel so much over their bond. But like they didn't spend any time during the movie building up a connection. Like they had one conversation, you know, when when Obi was getting ready to go to bed, and yeah, they had one con. Like they okay, two. They had two conversations. Um, once when they were, um, you know, sitting in that little hut or whatever, and then the other one when they're at the the one guy's apartment who turns on Tyler. Like that's not enough time to build up a connection. And so I agree. They would laid it on thick at the end there that like Tyler or Ovi was so upset about Tyler dying and it just it was a huge miss for me. Yeah, and we get we get extremely generic bad guys in this. Like the big bad doesn't even like the main hero and the main bad guy don't even meet in the movie. We have countless nameless, often faceless police officers and henchmen. Uh, being gunned down almost instantaneously. I mean, crime is going to be rampant in DACA because I don't think there's a single cop left on the Asian Peninsula after after Chris Hemsworth rolls through. You know, we have Saju, for example, right? The 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 guy who's sort of like our anti-hero uh, yeah, who becomes an ally to Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. He's like the third main character in the movie, and he fights like a madman, takes people out. And how does he die? Oh, he gets sniped by the lame, nameless colonel. Like, like our villains in this movie are terrible. So there is one thing I want to ask you guys about, and that's the ending. So you said that... Yeah, you does know, he die, think, Evan? Does yeah. he die? Because he gets yeah. shot a bunch of times, then he's shot through the neck and falls into the, into the, you know, the water with all of his heavy gear on. And <laughs> then it shows, like, eight months later... Ovi's in the swimming pool. He comes out and he sees a man who's kind of resembles, you know, Tyler, right. Chris Hemsworth's character. A white and man. Then it just very then clearly it just a cuts. white man. Then it just cuts. So and now not, is it now? There's maybe a sequel coming out, and Chris Hemsworth no. might be back. So there yeah. is. There is. Yeah, I, I know. I heard, I heard. I heard about that. This movie didn't do enough to earn that kind of ending, guys. This was no. Absolutely. I don't not. agree. I agree with you, but it is left ambiguous if Tyler actually died. It's hard to doubt that. Otherwise, why would they put a random white guy in an Indian country? When he when he's I mean, I, I, mean I guess it's I guess it's believable given Chris Hemsworth dodged about two hundred soldiers, but like 
But he got shot through what? the neck. <laughs> what are we going to do with an extraction to you guys? What are we going to get a 22 minute long continuous shot sequence? I mean, come on. Like, this, no, time, we agree. This, time Ovi's, this time Ovi's got to save Tyler. <laughs> I, I think yeah. my, I think my subconscious was like, no, cause you're right. I remember it. He, you know, the kid Ovi, he's on the high board. He dives into the pool and then we see he pops up and we, I remember it, but I didn't honestly, guys, I didn't think twice because I thought, I have no interest to see a second. I don't know what the hell they're going to do to see a second, nor do I care whether or not this guy survived. And I think that was kind of my main point. Well, there not only one... does he dive into the diving board, but he chant he does the exact same thing that Chris Hemsworth does in the beginning of the movie when right, he jumps yeah. off the cliff and he goes and sits underwater. Which you'd have no reason to know how why yeah, you would have yeah. no there's no like he can't do that in homage of Chris Hemsworth's character because he didn't even know he did that. Like, maybe Jordan, they talked about it in, maybe they talked about it in the sewer. Uh, as, George, so, as George Lucas who instead of Star Wars, you know, it's poetry, so that like it rhymes. Oh yeah. Well, one other was... thing did it not did it not seem unnecessary for him to sacrifice himself at the end? Like, couldn't he have just retreated with the kid? Like, I think we're supposed to believe that Chris Hemsworth wanted to die to be with his kid. So they try and play that oh, up, yeah. but then at the end they throw in this ambiguous: Is he actually dead? So well, yeah. Oh yeah. Why bother? What's the point? <laughs> Well, there were so many loose ends. Not only that, do you remember like the rogue like Indian or Bangladesh kid who wanted to who cut off his finger? Like he appears and shoots Chris Hemsworth and then disappears. And we never yeah. that 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 narrative or storyline is un is untold or unfinished. Like I just you know, we talked about it earlier. There's there's watching something for the sake of one purpose. Um and, and that's for action. That's all that this was for me. And on that note, I think it was okay. But trying to pull meaning half-acidly in the second half of the film and then try... Like, the first half of the film, there was no meaning or relationship or character development built at all the first hour. And then they tried to, like, salvage it in the last 45. And that, that's not how filmmaking works. <laughs> you can't do it that way. There was one line, though, I did like, and that's when Ovi is talking to Tyler and he says, you don't, you drown not by falling into the river, but by staying submerged in it. That was a really good line, though, and that that line has actually stayed with me all week. I've thought about that line a lot, especially just in all the isolation we're feeling. So, yeah. Okay, so so, so we've got... I got to say real quick, I kind of chuckled because um, (laughs) as soon as, as soon as... He said that, and then as soon as we get to the river, I'm like, five bucks, Chris Hemsworth is going in the river. They're going to try to connect that one line to a symbolic, <laughs> literal, actual occurrence, and they did. So okay, we've got, so just so we're keeping score here, we've got Evan that approves of 11 minutes of the film, Mike who approves of one line, uh, <laughs> and me who liked the action. So there we go. That's extraction for you. But Evan, well, let's let's wrap this up, unless anyone else has... Something more poign- poignant to say about no. this pretty forgettable film, but Evan, what 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 are you giving it? You know, I, this might surprise you given how much I ripped on it. But coming from the like strictly, this is an action film giving us no depth or meaning. I thought there was some really good action, so I ended up giving it a six out of ten. Mike, I mean, 
I definitely realized my grade for it was going to go down when I realized that I was starting to predict camera shots before they happened. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, we're about to cut to a, you know, like a close-up. We're about to cut to a shot of the doorway. We're about to cut to, like, I mean, the movie was just so predictably, you know, action-y, I guess. I'll give it a, a C plus or B minus. One of those. You can pick. I don't really care. God bless you, so, Chris Hemsworth. You almost tried to save this movie, but yeah, it was whatever. <laughs> So I, when I'm judging this movie, I'm not judging it on anything other than an action movie. And uh, for that reason, I thought the action was eh, slightly above average, I'd say. The continuous shot was a nice touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm also going to give it a 6 out of 10. It, it does kind of remind me, it had a lot of the same themes of uh, another bad movie called Tears of the Sun that came out, uh, what, 2003 <laughs> with Bruce Willis. It had to do with Nigerian refugees, but... It had the same sort of themes where it was this buff, uh, you know, great threat rolling in who's coming to uh, American threat, who's coming in to rescue people, and then they have to deal with this moral dilemma. That movie wasn't great with it either, but he also, but it did, it did have more heart. I cared more about the characters um, in that. I'm mm-hmm. giving this a six out of ten as well. One other thing that we didn't really talk about that I think that this movie really is unnecessary and is the excessive violence. I mean, do we really need to pierce guys' brains on a pitchfork? Do we need to throw no. children off balconies? Do we need to see Saju spit up blood after he's had his ass kicked and break his nose back into place? What's the point of this gratuitous violence? And I think as we all three of us have you know, uh, said over this review... What is the point? That's kind of the main thing that we're all going with here. So um, if yeah. you're looking for something I, I will, to do, looking for entertainment, watch Extraction, but it's not going to be anything that's going to blow you away. I, I no just want to say intended. one more thing. <laughs> I, I just want to say one more thing. My life's goal is to play a role in a movie where I get to take on and put off my sunglasses as much as that lead female character. That was awesome. I think she took on and put off her glasses about eight times in the movie. Amen for that lady. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Anyways, that's Extraction. Um, If you're into action, check it out. It's on Netflix, and if you're bored, you can watch it. It's fine. It's just a action movie but it certainly doesn't transcend the genre and it's not gonna be anything you remember but anyways uh that's our that's our episode today on the second day film podcast the may 8th 2020 edition um guys thanks for participating i'm glad that we could get this going again uh hopefully our audio is a little bit more consistent than last time but i tried uh, to be louder (laughs) yeah you were you were i think you know we'll see how it goes uh we're still trying to figure out this remote uh tech situation but um, you know, we want to keep bringing content. If there's something you guys want us to review, let us know. Uh, hit us up on Facebook at the Second Day Film Podcast, on Twitter at Second Day Film, the Second Day Film Podcast on Instagram. Please check out our old episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. We would love to hear from you. Uh, boys, anything else you want to add? Let me know if you ever need me to talk about Frasier. <laughs> <laughs> and on that very depressing note, We want to say thanks for listening, and we'll see you at the movies.